You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Thank you. Somebody said I'm looking good. Thank you so much. Love it. What a great way to start a preach. Well, who is excited for Christmas? Wow. Not many people say, who is excited for Christmas? Give me a cheer. Who is excited for all the money going out of their bank account? Yeah. No, me neither. To be fair, I've got money going out of my bank account and I'm also a terrible gift giver. So unfortunately for me, it's just not really adding up. Um, But pray for me and pray for the people that are going to be receiving the gifts that I have to give. Well, since we are in the Christmas season, uh, it's also around this time that we usually turn our attention uh, to passages that focus on the coming of Jesus into the world, who would go on to be the saviour of the world. If you were in the carol service last Sunday, uh, you'll know that we had some readings uh, about Old Testament writings that speak of the promised Messiah to come. There was readings about the angel Gabriel coming to visit Mary and Joseph and the arrival of Jesus. And all of these accounts uh, are so worth getting into because they can stir our hearts uh, into a sense of wonder and awe at the promises of God being fulfilled and outworked. But what probably doesn't cause our hearts to go into excitement uh, are passages that speak about the genealogy of Jesus, like in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. The truth is, uh, when we get to passages like these, uh, it can just look like an endless list of names, which most of us either can't pronounce, like, is it Eliezer? Is it Eliezer? Like, what is it? Or we find it boring. Or really, we just don't understand the significance of it. But if all scripture is God-breathed and profitable or useful, as it says in 2 Timothy 3, then as uninteresting as certain parts of the Bible may be to us, they're actually important. You see, the genealogy of Jesus, amongst many things, can not only help us to frame the arrival of Jesus in a way that makes sense and increases our understanding, it can also show the faithfulness of God, that the promises that he spoke to men and women thousands of years ago are coming to pass. So rather than quickly skipping past these parts of the Bible, maybe what we need to do is to sit with them for a little bit longer so that what initially looked dull and boring begins to shine as the heart of God is revealed. So today we're going to sit together with one of these passages about the genealogy of Jesus. Now, when we talk about genealogy, uh, in essence, genealogy is the family line or ancestral line of a particular person, family, or group. The word genealogy uh, translates in Greek to the word genesis, which hopefully we're familiar with. Uh, That word means source or origin. So when we talk about the genealogy of Jesus, we're talking about tracing the origins of Jesus' biological and family line prior to his coming to earth. The writer Luke connects almost 4,000 years of Jesus' family history from Adam all the way to Jesus through the line of Mary, Mary being Jesus' biological parent. And Matthew traces around 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus through the line of Joseph, Joseph being Jesus' legal parent. 
So today we're going to be looking more specifically, specifically at the genealogy of Jesus found in Matthew 1. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, why don't we turn together uh, to Matthew 1, 1 to 17, which is also going to come up on the screen. Now, if as we're reading uh, along, you clock that your neighbor is dozing off slightly because they still find this very boring, I want you to elbow bump them gently, very gently, and say to them, wake up, you'll understand why it matters. So Matthew 1, 1 to 17 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abihud. Abihud the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azel. Azel the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Akim. Akim the father of Elihud. Elihud the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to, Bab uh, from the, exile to the Messiah. Wow. If that has... <laughs> thank you, thank you. Woo! If that has not got you excited to read more, then I don't know what will. Uh, as we seek to unpack uh, this text in a short while, uh, the title of my message for today is Written In, Not Written Off. You know, I've been to numerous households uh, in my lifetime, and I feel like there are often two types of families that I observe. We have the perfect family. Of course, there is no such thing as a perfect family, but... When I would go to visit um, certain families, I would see a beautifully arranged home. We'd all sit at the dinner table. We'd have amazing conversations and we all just seem to get along. I know some of you in here thinking that is not my family. <laughs> but there's also the chaotic family that I've observed. They're rowdy, they're loud. It's a little bit messy. I find myself drafted into family arguments and I'm like, is this really happening right now? Now, granted, these are probably exaggerations and snapshots and not complete representations of each family. I still find it quite interesting uh, to observe family dynamics. But what's more interesting is that when we come to the Bible, we see each side of families represented there too. 
There are individuals and families doing incredible things like godly men and women who sometimes can make us feel as ordinary as can be. There's royalty, there's profound wisdom, there's generosity. But it's also these same families that are chaotic and peculiar. They're sinful and at times just outright questionable. This Bible, inspired by the perfect, holy and righteous God, doesn't shy away from highlighting sinful people like those listed in the genealogy of Jesus. See, God doesn't scramble to tidy up these names when he knows that others are coming to see, just like we might um, when we're having guests to come into our homes. Instead, it's through the messy and imperfect lives of these people that God often reveals uh, us to himself to us. These people aren't written off, they're written in. Not only that, these messy and peculiar people are written in as the family line through which Jesus is born. Tim Keller, speaking about the genealogy of Jesus in his book, Hidden Christmas, the surprising truth behind the birth of Christ, says, We live in an individualistic culture in which you recommend yourself to others with a list of your degrees, work experiences and accomplishments. That's not how it was done in a communal, family-oriented society. Matthew 1 might look like a genealogy, and it is, but it's also a resume. In those times, it was your family, pedigree, and clan, the people that you were connected to that constituted your resume. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. It's interesting to know that in those days, people tinkered with their resumes as they do today. We tend to leave out parts of our track record that might not make us look good, and people did that in ancient times too. The purpose of a genealogical resume was to impress onlookers with high quality and respectability of one's roots. But Matthew does the very opposite with Jesus. To begin with, there are five women listed in the genealogy, all mothers to Jesus. This will not strike modern readers as unusual, but in ancient patriarchal societies, a woman was virtually never named in such lists, let alone five of them. You could call these women gender outsiders in those cultures, yet they are in Jesus's genealogy. Also, most of the women in the resume were Gentiles like Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. They were Canaanites and Moabites. To the ancient Jews, these nations were unclean. They weren't allowed into the tabernacle or temple for worship. We could call them racial outsiders, and yet they are in Jesus's genealogy. Wow. How beautiful is that picture of Jesus's heart to include all. And God doesn't just include the gender and racial outsiders, he includes the sinners. As we look back at the passage, we have Abraham. In verse one, Jesus is called the son of Abraham and this was an indicator uh, that Jesus would be the one to carry out the fulfillment of God's covenant promise towards Abraham that he gave him in Genesis, that through his offspring, uh, he would be blessed to be a blessing and that all families of the earth would be blessed through him. But this is the same Abraham that lied twice, that his wife was also his sister, so that powerful men wouldn't kill him and take his wife. His son Isaac even did the same thing. It's the same Abraham that had a child with his slave girl, Hagar, because he couldn't wait for God to fulfill his promises his way. 
Then we have Jacob. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. That's literally what his name means. He deceived his father to receive a blessing. He lied to his father-in-law so that he would get the best of the flock. And he deceived his brother Esau into giving him his birthright for a bowl of soup. Then we have David. By identifying Jesus as the son of David in verse 1, it shows that Jesus was from the line of royalty and was to fulfill the promise that David's throne would last forever because he would have offspring that would reign forever. Yet of all the things that Matthew could have drawn to our attention about David, like his great kingdom and his wealth, the fact that he was a mighty warrior or an amazing musician, Matthew chooses to remind us of David's sin. He specifically says in one of the verses, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. If you remember the situation, David basically exploited Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and had a child with her, who was Solomon. He then killed Uriah to make the circumstances a little bit more legal for him to marry Bathsheba without suspicion. David broke at least five out of the ten commandments, adultery, stealing, murder, coveting, lying. Then we have Solomon. Solomon was a womanizer. He had over a thousand women and even had foreign wives, which led him to idol worship. Though he was known as one of the wisest men in history, his foolishness was exposed because of him following his flesh. Then we have Rehoboam. Rehoboam incited heavy taxes and forced labor on the people he was supposed to be leading. Jehoram. Jehoram was the fifth king of Judah. He killed six of his brothers, all six of them, um, so that he would have no threat to his reign. Manasseh. Manasseh engaged in sorcery and even sacrificed his own son in the worship of false gods. We have Tamar. Tamar deceived her father-in-law into having children with her to protect her life. And Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute. And we're just scratching the surface here. The list goes on and on of all the different things that these people did. But then there was Jesus. Jesus, this perfect, sinless, spotless one. God himself would choose to place himself in a family of marginalized, inadequate, messed up and unworthy people. And so if at some point uh, you felt in yourself that God would want little or nothing to do with you or your family because of how messed up you are, let this be a reminder to you that God can work with anyone. You only have to let him. You know, I know for for many of us, as we come into uh, the Christmas time, we're connecting and gathering with a lot of our family members. And sometimes uh, it's in these settings that uh, the messiness of our family can become just a little bit more obvious to us. And that can be uh, sometimes a point of argument or resentment within our families. But let me reassure you today that God is not put off by your family circumstances. God wants to be in the midst. God wants to be at work in the midst of the chaos. And so three things uh, that we can learn about the genealogy of Jesus. Firstly, you're written in, not written off, because God works through messy people. You see, for thousands of years, God has been working to bring about his perfect plan through imperfect people. It's not to say that the sins or like the errors of these people were acceptable, but it's to say that the grace of God at work in these people's lives was more 
than enough. It was through Rahab, the prostitute, that God worked to bring the Israelites victory over Jericho. It was through David, the adulterer, that God worked to inspire him to write some of the Psalms that deeply impact our lives today. It was through the poor and humble sad parents of Jesus in a stinky and noisy manger with insignificant shepherds as guests that Jesus, the savior of the world, was born. And as these individuals submitted their lives to God, he went to work revealing himself through them. And it's through your ordinary, messy and imperfect life too that God wants to weave your name and your story into his story. And how do I know that? It's not just because I've read it in the, in the passage today. It's because I've seen it in my own life. I don't know about you, but I am so aware of my shortcomings, my faults, my insecurities, and my weaknesses. I'm so aware of the family that I come from, which on the one hand is full of kind-hearted, beautiful, humble, generous people. But on the other hand, it's full of adulterers and liars and addicts and single parents and more. And yet it's the grace of God that would work through us helping us to bless others with our gifts and our abilities, enabling us to change generational cycles and positioning us to be a display of the love of God. This God, our God, shines best in our darkness. As he works with us and redeems our stories, the glory of the gospel shines even brighter through that. So don't write yourself off today before God has had a chance to show up and show out in your life. Now, God is radically committed to you in love. As, and as he's in the business of fulfilling his purposes, he wants to use you specifically to do incredible things for his kingdom. Secondly, you're written in, not written off because God chooses messy people. You know, it's often said that you don't choose your family. You're basically born into it. And whilst that might be true among people, in the family of God, God does choose you. It's one thing to know that God works through you, but it's another thing to know that God wants to call you his own. If we were to imagine the genealogy of Jesus being written today, God would want to write your name in the fan family line after Jesus. In John 1, 11 to 13, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's speaking of Jesus. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. By saying we have this right to be children of God, it means that through Jesus, we get the ability and the authority and the freedom to be a part of God's family. That as he chooses us, we also get to choose him. Just as God included gender outsiders and racial outsiders and moral failures in the family lineup leading to Jesus, God's heart for inclusion has made a way for all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and nations to come to his family. Because God so loved 
the world that he gave his son, Jesus. Hebrews 2.11 says, both the one who makes holy, meaning Jesus, and the, one who, the ones who are made holy, meaning us who receive Jesus, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to be called their brother, to call them brothers and sisters. You know, we may have certain uh, members of our biological family that uh, we know feel some type of way towards us, or we may think that God himself feels some type of way towards us. But let me reassure you today that Jesus is not ashamed of you. For those of us with strained family relationships or for those of us that have felt at some point that we don't belong, Jesus is not ashamed of you. You have a place to belong and a people to call family in the household of God. Can I invite the band to come up? Uh, lastly, you're written in, not written off, because God cleans up messy people. You know, as much as we love our family, we still at times need to confront the dysfunctions within our family. As much as family can be a gift, that gift can sometimes come with sharp edges uh, that need to be smoothed out. And the same goes with belonging uh, in the family of God. As it's sometimes been put, God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as he found you. And so just as God worked in the hearts of those that we've read about in this genealogy today, God wants to get to work in us. God worked in their lives to convict them of their sin, to forgive them, to heal their broken hearts, to teach them obedience, to refine and mature them. And that's what he wants to do in us too. As we accept Jesus as our saviour and our Lord and, and come into his family, there's a lifelong journey that we go on where we submit to God and God gets to work in our lives to restore us to his perfection and his holiness and his goodness. And in making us more like him, God is not in any way uh, trying to erase us as individuals. He's actually beautifying us. He makes us more glorious and he brings out the best in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, when we come to Christ, we're made into a new creation and we have a new identity and new purposes. And as God works in us, he's bringing about that truth that we've just read about into its fullness, into a complete reality into our lives. God has not written you off. He wants to write you in to his glorious story as he makes you more glorious. I wonder if I could invite us to stand. Um, in a moment, I'm going to pray for all of us based on, on what I shared. But as I was praying into this message, um, I got the sense that God really uh, wants to encourage some families in here. I got this sense in my heart that there are uh, some families or even parents or just 
particular people within a family that are feeling heartbroken. There's a sense of heaviness that you carry and a deep hurt, maybe because of particular circumstances that are going on within your family context. But I got the sense that God wants to comfort you today. In Isaiah 66, uh, verse 13, it says, As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. Now, many of us within our family context, we're the ones who, who carry the responsibility or carry the particular burdens of our family. But I believe that God is inviting us today to come as children and to be comforted by Him, Him being our good Father. And so I'm going to invite us to close our eyes. And if you know that that is you who needs comfort today, I'm just going to invite you to, to lift up your hands. I got this picture of lifting your hands up, almost like when a child reaches up for a father to, to lift them, to come and to comfort them. And I believe that that is what the Lord wants to do today, to bring comfort. We're just going to wait here for a moment and just receive from the Lord. Allow him to comfort you. Allow him to hold you. It doesn't mean that the issues are going to go away, but you'll be comforted. He'll be near to you. He'll help you. He'll sustain you. God, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. And we thank you, Lord, that in the messiness of our lives and the circumstances of our family, Lord, you are one who wants to comfort. And so, Lord, I speak your comfort over all those that have lifted up their hands today, Lord, who are running to you, looking for refuge, looking for safety, looking for you to cover them and to tell them it's going to be okay. Lord, we thank you that you're a God who works through our messy lives that you call us into your family, that you call us sons and daughters. And we thank you for that truth today, Lord. And may it settle in our hearts, Lord, no matter whether we've written ourselves off, we've thought of ourselves as too far gone, Lord, we thank you that you write us into your story. Lord, help us this Christmas as we gather with our families, Lord. May your presence be so evident, Lord. May your joy be so evident, God. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.